morning. This is Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of this show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. I want to remind everyone that in the state of California, at least, state court judges, juvenile court judges, are subject to election and re-election. So if you're local, in your local county, if there are judges that you don't feel are family-friendly, you can do something by uh, voting at the ballot box. Good morning. Today's show, we're going to have a special guest at the half hour at 8.30, Attorney Stephanie Davis. Stephanie Davis is an expert in the area of juvenile dependency law, and uh, she works with me, and we uh, fight for to reunite children with their parents, and we also... Um, uh, sue social workers and counties, uh, generally in federal court, uh, when they have violated the family's civil rights. Ms. Davis has been practicing approximately 30 years. Uh, she is uh, an excellent trial attorney in the juvenile court system, and opinion, she is one of the best juvenile dependency appellate lawyers in California. And so today we're going to be talking about a very important fact or situation, and that's when if you're a parent and you've been going through the juvenile dependency process, at some point you may lose your family reunification services. And Attorney Stephanie Davis is going to explain to us what should be done once that happens. Before she comes on at 8.30, I'm going to try to cover a few things myself. Uh, first of all, I want to give everybody um, a web address so that they can get a very important tool um, that's put out by the state of California uh, that will help you and assist you and inform you about uh, the juvenile dependency process step-by-step. Uh, -step. It's a step-by-step -step guide. It's free. And... Um, there is a hard copy that you can download, which is over 500, I think over 550 pages. And this resource is also available online where you can just go repeatedly and look at it. So we'll be talking about that. So get your pencils and papers ready. Um, the first thing that I want to do today is I want to talk about um, a couple of cases that I, my office and I am personally involved in. Um, I won't mention, of course, the family's name. I won't mention the county that it's invo involved in, although we get a lot of people calling um, from all over the country. Um, but this is uh, one of the cases is a very unique case. Um, I represented uh, a mother here in California, and um, she uh, maybe in the past year moved to um, – to Arizona. And while living in Arizona, she had a new baby. And um, as the story goes, I, I believe 
the social worker here in California contacted Arizona um, to let them know that she had had a case in Arizona. And for whatever strange reason, the social worker in Arizona went up there and met with them. And after one or two meetings, uh, decided to detain the child and place the child in foster care for what I think is about seven to ten days. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to Arizona to represent her, but uh, I did give her some information. She contacted a, a local attorney who is an expert in juvenile dependency law, <clears throat> and uh, he represented her in the case. And I just found out on Thursday afternoon that the juvenile court judge in Arizona gave the child back to the mother and to the father and uh, from what I understand basically ruled that there was no reason for the social worker in Arizona to take this child away from um, the parents. Now Arizona is kind of an interesting state and although we live in what's called the Ninth Circuit um, of the, the U.S. Court of Appeals, which covers most of the western states, including Arizona, the Ninth Circuit has said uh, in several opinions that before you take a child away, you need one of three things. You need an exigent circumstance, which means an emergency uh, situation, or you need a warrant signed by a judge or a court order made by a judge. Now, Arizona is one of the few states that um, uh, they feel can just take children, uh, you know, when they to take children. In this particular case, I am told, I wasn't there, that the, worker, the social worker admitted that there was no real emergency other than she thought that the parents might leave and come back to California which was interesting because the parents were living in a house or an apartment there in uh, Arizona. Uh, the father was working, uh, making money at a job, and uh, the apartment we're renting was, um, you know, well-stocked and well-furnished, stocked with food and furniture and bedding and, you know, couches, TVs, what have you. So I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm kind of perplexed at why the social worker thought that they were going to run away. As I mentioned, they had met one or two times with the social worker, and they hadn't run away. And perhaps the judge in Arizona felt the same way, and he released the child back. The The mother has asked me um, to file a case, uh, a civil rights violation in Arizona, because circuit, and probably in the entire United States, uh, it's illegal for a social exigent circumstances or a court order or a warrant. It's a violation of the mother, the father, and the child's civil rights, specifically their Fourth Amendment right to um, you know, not have an unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be going to Arizona. Uh, I've already contacted a couple of colleagues in Arizona, and uh, we're going to be working together in um, – trying to uh, remedy this situation. I know that there, um, I've heard that there is another case in Arizona uh, basically doing the same thing, suing uh, CPS in Arizona for taking children without uh, 
a warrant, and I, from what I understand, it's winding its way through the judicial process, uh, and it's being spearheaded by uh, an attorney from Los Angeles, excuse me, an attorney from San Diego, um, a gentleman by the name of Sean McMillan, who's a guru in this area of suing CPS for constitutional uh, violations. Uh, he's done cases all over, and uh, he's representing a family there. Um, I'm going to try to contact him and try to uh, get some information before I file my case in Arizona. Uh, but I'll keep you updated. Um, my office currently has, uh, seems like, 15, 16 cases uh, against uh, social workers and counties uh, around Southern California. And we're going to take on one in uh, Sacramento. Uh, where they have, um, in my opinion, uh, violated a mother's rights so bad that it, it makes me embarrassed to be part of this. Uh, um, it, it, I, I just I don't know what to say. It's it's just incredible. Um, before Stephanie this calls in, I'm going to try to take a few calls, and I'll go to the first call. It's uh, area code 909. Uh, area code ending in one. Good morning, you're on with Attorney Vince Davis. Good morning. Okay, we have somebody that The next caller is area code five two, ending in one. And you're on with attorney Vincent. Good morning, Vincent. Can you hear me okay? Morning. I can hear you loud and clear. Did you have a yeah or a uh, to ask? Well. <laughs> It's it's been a very very hard to you and all your listeners what I've been going through with my family, um, and I guess it's more of a story uh, uh, to Toby out there. Um, you know, uh, Vincent Davis is a remarkable man, and what's been going through my life and what's getting so worse is that I'm a family man. I'm just later in life, and um, you know, uh, me and my wife. You were going through some issues early on, and and we got caught up in a social service uh, system that uh, has been so corrupt and so bad that after two years and uh, almost two months, um, it's worse today than it was when they first took our kids. And that's the hardest part is one thing is to be in the system. Another thing is to be treated fairly, and one of my mistakes early on and of course, I didn't have the finances, and I got my finances later in life after my mom died, and I was going through so much tragedies. But um, I'm able to get a good attorney on board, which all your listeners need to know and need to understand, is that you need to have an attorney. If you try to fight this on your own, it gets worse. I tried to. I had a public defender. Wife had a public defender. And uh, they made this into a, 
a federal night case. Not only did social services get involved, but the um, but the police department did, and they duplicated everything that social service done. It seems like uh, they're on the debtor to get somebody um, uh, to be just mean and so nasty to them. And what um, what's hard is that your kids suffer. Um, I have uh, a young family, you know, and at the time my son was 15 and now he's 17 and my daughter was 12 and she'll be uh, 15 on the 9th. I haven't seen my daughter in the whole two years. They've done nothing to even attempt to see it. They have taken the issues and convinced my daughter. Of course, it's sad to see how families get involved and families have their own agenda. And it's was heartbreaking to see that my wife was abandoned um, with um, uh, just me and my family taking care of her. And, uh, you know, even though we patched things up um, and uh, we did everything that social service asked of us, they uh, still have refused to honor their commitments. It's gotten so bad that our nine-year-old, who now is 11, um, who's been in the system for over two years, been bouncing around, they have a way of breaking up a family. They they put you in a group home, which is good because it keeps the family together, but they dupe the kids. And uh, not only bad social services, the attorneys. The attorneys, and I'm not trying to badmouth an attorney because, you know, you're an attorney, Vincent, but these attorneys for social services, they're in, they're in cahoots, meaning that you have a judge and you have these attorneys and you have these social workers, they go into the thing, or in, in dependency court, you don't get to, um, you don't get to see uh, what is going on, except when they call you in to, to do kind of like, um, I don't know, it's kind of a mock trial, we finally got something going, but um, it's like the lies that social service can do. It's just unbelievable how lie they can do it. They will make up stories any which way and make it worse. And, it's a power trip. You're having a, a social worker assigned to the case who's in her mid-20s, who's not married, doesn't have a family, has no idea what a family is about, and uh, um, orchestrating everything. It's like my poor son, you know, he has a school of origin, and, uh, you know, he's in a special program school, and they have an excellent special program, and he's supposed to be going to middle school next year. Well, guess what social service is doing? They are saying that um, – that um, you're not going to see your mom or dad. Um, and the, the foster care said the same thing. There's no encouragement. You see, uh, the thing is I don't seem to understand is that why did they not make it so that, you know, people um, want to come back together as a family and, and the mother and father still love the children and they've done all the programs and corrected anything that was wrong or right. And uh, they still keep going on like um, – like it was uh, bad, and I guess one of the things is we I was writing letters from the top of social service all the way down, meeting with them. This is before I had my attorney, and and uh, um, I, I was fighting the system. What they point out was wrong. Well, they don't like that, so they're on a vedenic kick, and so um, it is corrupt. It's it's sad. I mean, I I see the corruptions everywhere. I mean, I, I look at the bailiff. You know, the sheriff bailiff, and he's in cahoots. I mean, he's making smart smirks. I mean, it's like, it's, it's disgusting. And then the judge sits there, and you look at the judge, and think he's being honest. 
and so forth. And it's like when they're doing cross-examine, the judge half the time just overrules everything. I mean, he doesn't really, um, you know, find anything. And of course, my case is just, I don't know, I'm just going, seems like nowhere. We're trying to get another set, another attorney for my wife because he had to bail out and he turned into something I just cannot believe. I mean, I'm just still shocked that um, it, um, it ended up getting um, bad. And so I don't know what to do right now because I'm, I, I, I know Vincent's doing a remarkable job. It's like it's up a hill battle every time you go. We have a court case uh, continuation of trying to stop my daughter, who's been convinced that she wants to be adopted by my wife's sister, and the wife's sister doesn't um, um, want that to happen because she's not best. The, the wife's sister has um, all kinds of diseases, all kinds of problems, domestic violence. Her husband, she's getting divorced, and it hid, was hidden from social services. Uh, the worker kept it from um, uh, the social in front of who's doing the report and everything. I was just shocked to find all this out. And it's like um, it's like a nightmare. I hear he, this case up in Sacramento. Um, yeah, I, I can believe anything now. And, and uh, this is a, a classic example of that you, you have to keep fighting it's just hard every day you're going through the requirements. It's like, you know, you're trying to maintain a job or get a job. How in the world can you get to maintain a job when you're spending all your time, you know, in court, doing social services classes, additional social services classes, more and more, and it just drags them on. We had a commitment in November 1st of 2016 to have our young son come home, our two boys, our older son and everything, he comes home April finally. He comes home four months later on April 6th. He's supposed to be home in December. And uh, we are paying for um, two places. I mean, I am spending so much money, and it's it's the hardest thing to do. And I, um, I want to tell all the listeners out there is that, you know, people ask, well, how have you not lost your mind? Or how you anything? Well, if you get a good attorney like Vincent is, and, uh, you know, I really recommend him, if any of you left to listen or thinking about an attorney, he will, uh, he will fight for you. He will, if you have a case, he'll believe in you. That's the hardest thing. If you can't find an attorney who believes in you, then they don't fight. And it ends up where you're just wasting money and time and so forth. And so um, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the lights at the, at the tunnel or what here, but we're sitting here questioning ourselves. Um, uh, it's 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 a bad case. I mean, um, you know, Vincent knows all about the case, and and so I ask you, Vincent, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Am I ever going to see our, our children back? Um, um, you know, I, the, the daughter thing, you know, is that she's been convinced that the father is so awful that she doesn't want to see him, which is hard to believe when you have a daughter that at the age of eleven goes with you up to um, see your parents' uh, belongings and help you load and bring everything back and loves you and adores you and has all this life and all of a sudden she no longer wants you. That's a hard thing to swallow. And then, you know, my wife and I go through so much. Um, it's like right now I'm on the race to go uh, 
out the door here for another social service commitment. So I have two of them today, and my wife has a visitation, and they just started the visitations again. Now they've gone from supervision to monitoring, just to punish you. Monitoring is ridiculous. What danger you're going to give to them? And it's like it gets worse and worse, and, of course, um, social service loves to squawk over to um, squawk over to um, uh, um, um, the criminal part because they, the criminal part they do a duplication which is wrong and so they're squatting over to that so um, anyway um, I think I've taken a lot of my time I should stop so other people can have things to say and maybe you could comment Vincent but um, thank you Vincent and thank you all you listeners that don't ever give up if your heart's in your children and you want to do right follow everything Get a good attorney, follow their advice, and I believe someday you'll see your children. Thank you, Vincent. Thank you for your call. I really appreciate you sharing. I'm going to be taking another call. We have a few more minutes before Attorney Stephanie Davis joins us. Um, it's going to be area code 626, ending in 66. That's not a problem. But you don't pay them. Of course well, they're not going to come. They're not going to talk to you. You pay them. I didn't realize that when I looked at the bottom of the thing, there's only $1,500 due. Go there and give Hello? them the May, May one. Hello? 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 Hi. Good morning. You're on live with Attorney Vincent Davis. Hi, Mr. Davis. Um, I actually live in San Marino right near your office. Um, I had twin boys who were kidnapped uh, to, Sing to Singapore in 2009. The mother came back. The boy, it took me an a, a year and a half to get him back from Singapore through all the legal proceedings. And then um, they came back in 2011. The mother came back, was arrested, and was convicted as a felon for um, child abduction. And over the last five years, um, she was denied repeated requests for joint custody for uh, visita uh, unsupervised visitation and so forth. But she was um, in deportation hearings before immigration fraud, and she needed the boys to be living with her to show hardship so she can get out of deportation. Well, the boys were um, evaluated by two psychologists and one psychiatrist from Huntington Memorial who said that they were essentially um, programmed to react to the mother and to think that I'm a danger to them, that I'm not really their biological father, and so forth and so on. And uh, um, all of a sudden, last September, there were multiple calls to DCFS about child abuse, about child neglect. The social worker cleared us uh, with two letters and, and then said uh, and told the boys, I don't have enough evidence to take you into uh, foster care and uh, your parents will have to work out um, any change in custody uh, or visitation arrangements. So I told the social worker, I said, don't close the case yet. Can you please have these kids evaluated? Because something is terribly wrong. Their behavior changed so drastically. And when she didn't respond, I escalated it to my county supervisor, um, Catherine Barger's office, and they sent it to a supervisor at DCFS down on uh, uh, Colorado in Pasadena. And they said that, well, we're not here to prevent issues. We're only here to take action after something happens. Well, something did happen. The boys attacked me, and then the, the, the DCFS came, took the kids, and then 
about two weeks later, I get a notice to go to children's court in uh, Monterey Park. And this judge, Julie Blackshaw, she was so biased, it was incredible. And my court-appointed attorney said nothing. So I found another attorney, and he, he knew nothing about 176s or 170.1 to disqualify the judge until it was too late. And when I looked at the um, report from the evaluator, the jurisdiction report, there were so many lies in it. This, this social worker, Christy Parkin, it's, it's just incredible. I started a blog, CSW Christy Parkin, at Blogspot, just to, just to post all the lies that she said. And then all these other social workers, there's this one that wrote the reports that I hit my son and a tooth fell out. And the police came and did nothing. I said, can you imagine the San Marino Police Department coming to a house and the kid has a bloody mouth and they did nothing? I asked her, I said, did you even ask the child to open his mouth to see which tooth was missing? And she goes, no, I only write what they tell me. And I, I just can't believe these people. One after another, just sign all these reports. I understand that you have like a dozen cases against DCFS uh, in L.A. or something like that. And I want to see if there's anything I can do. I already gave them this notice, this uh, notice for claims or whatever uh, within the six-month period telling them that I'm going to sue them. I just want to sue them for the lies that they put in these reports that are unsubstantiated, just one after another. And then the attorney that I have now says, well, children's court is like kangaroo court. And and the judge, Blackshaw, she went through a ter terrible divorce with twin boys, and I believe that when she looks at me, she sees her ex-husband. So anything I say doesn't matter. It's incredible. I don't know how these people get away with it, why the county supervisor's office allow these people to, to, to keep doing this. And, and, and they handed the kids to a convicted felon, you know, who was on five years of felony probation with, with a probation violation. I don't understand how they can do that. Hold on a second. They gave the kids to the mother? Yes. So then, and then she showed up in immigration court on January 25th, and she got her uh, cancellation of deportation. Does the, has the social worker reported that to the judge? Oh, they know. I told even when the when the when those calls started coming in, I documented it. I gave them the notice to appear, the deportation, everything in Oct in October and November. Everybody knew about it, okay? I, and I even gave them the three written uh, evaluations by the psychiatrist, and the evaluator said that the, the child psychologist who worked with the boys for three years was biased. And I'm thinking, you're not even a, a licensed psychologist. You weren't there when the children went through therapy. You weren't there when the mother went to see the psychologist. You know, and all of a sudden she reads something, and she, she the only reason she said is biased is because she doesn't like what, what she read. It didn't fit into her scenario that she wanted to craft. What um, what stage are you at in your juvenile case? Um, Do you know, we had uh, uh, in March we had a uh, a date where where they placed the. Uh, um, uh, boys with the, with the mother uh, permanently, pretty much permanently. And then we have a August 31st for another hearing. And my lawyer says, you might as well not go because even if you walk on water, the judge is not going to give you any custody evaluation. And I said, that's fine. But my issue is how do these 
social workers and DCFS get away with these lies. It's just incredible. I mean, they're documented lies. They're, they said things like, I would not provide insurance well, they, information. Well, they, well they, they get away with it because nobody, nobody challenges them in court. So, for example, I want to challenge them. I, I don't want to challenge them in children's court. I want to challenge them in some other court. Yeah, I want all this thing to be public. That's why I started the blog. Did you even have a trial in um, juvenile court? Yes, we did. We had it on March second. The, the judge, we we were in in January. Uh, we were given the uh, in February. We were given the jurisdictional report. Uh, four days or three days before trial on a Friday, and trial was supposed to start on a Tuesday. And my lawyer went in <clears throat> and said, we need more time for discovery. And the judge said, you don't need discovery. We're going to trial. And then she decided on that day that uh, the, the trial date on Tuesday was very busy and she has to move it. But then when the other, uh, when another court-appointed attorney says, oh, Your Honor, we're, I'm on vacation that day, then she moved it into, to March 2nd and March 3rd. And these charges, my, my lawyer says, look, these charges, the judge is going to find you guilty because that's the way she is. She doesn't care what evidence you're going to present. That's going to be it. And it's a, <coughs> I forgot, it was an A level or a B level where you're going to be reported to a child abuse database or something like that. You know, so then we started working out a deal and they knocked off like two or three or four of the charges. And then I said, okay, fine, I'll admit to this one because I just, I just don't want my kids to have to go on the stand and lie because I can tell that's what they're doing. You know, they, they, they said things like, uh, I withhold food from them. Are you kidding me? Our refrigerator, every, I, ha I have seven, six letters from DCFS from 2009 until November of 2016 that says all the allegations by the mother were, was unfounded. And then there was no allegations between oh, 2012... Uh, they turned 17 in March. That's why I say a custody issue doesn't matter. Even if I get them back a visitation, it's only nine months before they head off to college and they're gone, right, or a year. But but the thing is, I, I just like you said, there must be something people can do. Maybe, you know, I might be, what is it, like a candle in the wind. Nobody cares. But somehow this has to be publicized that these people cannot get away with it. And the mother shared the whole juvenile court file with another attorney on an unrelated uh, probate case that I have with my mother's estate, and he filed it in open court in a probate case. And that's a violation of the Welfare and Institution Code 827 and, and uh, what is it, the Penal Code 11167.5 or something like that. You know, it's a misdemeanor. And then I pointed this out to the judge, and, and she, didn't, she did nothing. She said, I'm not going to do anything about it. She said, if you want to, you can make a police report. Who was the judge? Julie Blackshaw. Now, who was the probate judge? Probate judge is the Leslie Green. Were you represented in the probate case by a lawyer? 
Yes. He, when he found out that it was uh, filed, he wrote this guy, the, the lawyer, a uh, letter saying, you violate welfare institutions code. You're supposed to get prior approval from the presiding judge, which is Michael Levanas or something, before you can, you, can use the, you can file it or use it in any other proceeding, and he didn't do that. So as far as I'm concerned, that whole file is public because people keep saying, oh, those, the, 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 the children's court file is, is uh, confidential. You'll never be able to sue them because you're, they, won't, they won't let you see. They won't, you can't use a confidential file. But now it's filed in public court, in an open court. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to get a pen and a paper. Yeah. When you're ready. Yeah, I'm ready. Give me a phone. I give you a phone number. Eight eight eight. Okay. I, I, eight eight eight. Eight eight eight. Yes. Six five eight two. Six. Triple eight. Okay. Triple eight six five eight two. Okay. I want you to call that number. Right. And I want you to make an appointment to either see me in person or on the phone. Um, we're going to have to talk more in depth about this situation. I, I've been to your office. I talked to one of your assistants, and they, she said, no, I can't do anything for you. So when you call, you make an appointment for me personally. Okay. I would like that very much. I will do that on, on the Monday. So if you call, no, you can call today. There will be someone there after 930. Call okay. and tell them that you spoke to me this morning on the radio show. And that okay. I've asked for you to make an appointment to speak to okay. me in person or on the phone. Okay. Okay. I, I I don't live that far from your office. I can just come down and see you in person. I think that's that's might might be better if you have the time. Perfect. Well, I look okay. Thank thank you, Mr. Davis. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was an interesting. Uh, Situation happens more than more times than people would uh, would think. Um, before Stephanie calls in, we're going to take a call. Here, three two three in the end three. Good morning, you're on with Attorney Vincent Davis. Hello, hi. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm great. Better. I was calling because story yes, yes, no, I'm actually calling in to share a story about my experience with DCFS and my children. At the time, I had three children that were taken away from me through DCFS. Um, the worker was supposed to have been helping me keep the girls in school, but she didn't. And they actually uh, separated me and my children, and they were not going to school while they were um, in their care. Um, also, um, during this time, their grandmother had got, their great-grandmother had got killed by their father with a broom, all because he was on drugs, his mom was on drugs, Granny Porter, which is their grandmother, their great-grandmother, was ill. She couldn't get out of the bed. And, or, you know, by herself or anything, she had to walk on a walker. So we had agreed that they cannot stay there. Brent, I mean, excuse me, uh, their dad, on the other hand, felt like it was uh, their fault. I'm busy. You have to come back. Uh, felt like it was her fault uh, to why they even went to the foster care. 
And once that had happened, that's when maybe a, a month later, he, you know, commenced to killing her with a broom. And besides that, during the course of those three months, uh, I ended up getting my children back. I went to court. The first time I went to court, the judge told me, um, because I smoked marijuana, that I cannot have my children back, that I would have to quit doing marijuana. So I quit doing marijuana, although I had a, a marijuana, I mean, a marijuana uh, card. And uh, they waited until that card expired. That's when they called me in, detained the children. My mother was actually standing right there. Um, so I went to court. And they just said no weed. So I quit smoking that? weed within, huh? Wait, hold on a second. This okay. When did this happen? Hello? Yes. Are you there? When, yeah. When did this happen? This happened in 2010 to up to 2013. They prolonged it by detaining my grant, sir. Do you have your children now? Yes, sir. I do have my children back. They're now grown. But the statute of limitations has not ran out yet, and I am in the process of trying to sue DCFS because of this incident. They had no reason to take the children. They had no warrant. Excuse me? Uh, no, not exactly. I do, but it hasn't become official yet. Sir? This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. Do you have a pendant paper? Yes, sir. Just one second. I want you to call the office and appointment to come see me. Okay. It's triple eight triple eight triple eight six five eight two. Eight 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 six five eight two. Call my office today after nine thirty and make an appointment. Okay, and we'll okay. talk about it more. I'm gonna to have to cut yes, the conversation sir. short because attorney Stephanie Davis has called in and I wanna get her on. Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much now yes, for the meeting with you. Bye bye. Okay. Good morning, Attorney Stephanie Davis. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. So the first thing that I want to tell people, because I get this question all the time, they ask me, are you and Stephanie related? And my my answer to that question is not really, but kind of. And specifically, I want to tell all the listeners that Stephanie and I used to be married. We're not married any longer, and subsequently um, to our divorce, she got remarried and I got remarried. And um, so we're not related, but we were at one time. What, what year did we get divorced? Do you remember? No, I don't remember that. I remember what year we got married, but I don't remember what year we got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
All right, so this morning, you know, I've already told the listeners about your background and that, um, you're, you know, you're considered one of the best appellate juvenile attorneys in the state. And I wanted to talk about what happens when your family reunification services terminate. Now, they can be terminated at the 6, 12, 18-month date or even at the disposition hearing. And a lot of people don't know that they shouldn't file an appeal at the dispo if their rights were terminated. Excuse me, if their services were terminated, they should be filing a writ. So tell us what, what we're supposed to do. Um, at the hearing where reunification services are terminated and the what's called the 2-6 or the planning and implementation hearing is set, and all orders that are that occurred on that at that hearing are reviewed by the court of appeal by a writ. You um, have to file. There's a notice that you have to file called the notice of intent to file writ. That must be filed within seven calendar days of the date of the hearing. Once that's filed, the court the Superior Court prepares the record on appeal. Once the record on appeal is filed with the court, with the Court of Appeal, then the appellant or the petitioner, which is the parent, has 10 days from the date the record is filed in order to file the writ to have the matter heard in the Court of Appeal. Okay. So let me back up just a second. What does it mean when the juvenile court terminates your family reunification services? It means that the um, the case plan that you you entered into at the disposition is no longer in effect. The social worker is not required to assist you or provide you with any additional services and the focus of the case has shifted from reunification with a parent to permanence for the child. So what if I don't, if I'm a parent and I don't file uh, the notice of intent within seven days, what, what are the consequences of that happening? Uh, you will not be able to make any arguments in front of the court of appeal, you'll lose your uh, chance to file a writ. And they're very strict about the filing deadlines in writ cases. So if you if you file it on the eighth day, um, it will be rejected. Um, the You might be able to make a motion to the court if you have a legal excuse for um, being, filing it late, but that is very rarely granted. Why is it so important to file this notice the seven days? I mean, why is it a big deal? I might, I might eventually get well, the kids back anyway, right? Yes, because um, one of the major arguments that can be made in a writ is whether or not the parent was provided with reasonable reunification services. And if the parent was not 
provided with reasonable reunification services and the Court of Appeal finds that, the Court of Appeal will order the trial court to provide the parent with additional reunification services. So what that means is the parent will get additional time to try and get their child back. So let me tell you something a client recently told me. Actually, he wasn't a client. He was thinking about becoming a client. He told me that he filed, the attorney filed the notice of intent, that they got the record back from the Court of Appeal, but the lawyer, the court-appointed lawyer, allegedly told him that he wasn't going, that the attorney wasn't going to file the writ because the social workers told him that he was close to getting his children back anyway. What would you tell that parent? That doesn't sound correct to me. If the person was close to getting their child back, that's even more reason to file the writ and possibly argue that there were not reasonable reunification services provided because, as I said, you get additional time if the court agrees with that argument. Well, should the attorney still file the writ with the client? I would have, yeah. I don't understand the basis for saying that that's why it wasn't filed. The only reason a writ should not be filed is if there are no legitimate legal arguments to make. I get a lot of calls. We get a lot of calls, talk to a lot of people. A lot of people ask me, well, who's supposed to prepare the writ and file it in the Court of Appeals? Who's supposed to do that? The parent's attorney. Technically, their trial attorney is the one that's supposed to do it, but I do know that when people have court-appointed counsel, in L.A. County at least, the court-appointed law firms have what they call writ specialists, that that's their sole job is to file these writs. Several people tell me that sometimes the court-appointed attorney, and it's usually people from other than L.A. County, because L.A. County has that one person assigned to it, that sometimes the court-appointed firm does not file the writs. Is there any remedy when that happens? No, there isn't. That's that a parent should come to an understanding with the attorney about whether a writ should be filed and who's going to file it. If the court-appointed attorney believes that a writ should be filed, then it's their obligation to file it. If they don't believe a writ should be filed, they are obligated to tell the client that they don't believe a writ should be filed, but tell the client that the client still has 
the opportunity to file the writ on their own. And um, we're using this term writ like everybody knows what it is. What is a writ? It is um, a legal document that sets that sets out the um, facts, and uh, it's a petition, in other words, but it's a legal petition that sets out the facts and of the person's case and then legal arguments describing errors were made in the trial court and by the trial court. What if I said it was, I mean, in common layman's terms, is it a sort of an appeal? It is, it's a form of an appeal, yes. Because anything, Anything that goes to the court of appeal for them to hear is the is a form of an appeal. One, they just have different names for different purposes. Okay. So let me tell you something that recently happened. Yesterday, um, I was interviewing a potential client. Um, her family reunification services were terminated in. March, her 2-6 hearing regarding the termination of her parental rights has been set for let's say March, April, May, June, July, sometime in early August. And her attorney filed the notice of intent to file a written file. The court then sent her notice the same day that that notice of intent had been filed. And this case is out of San Bernardino County. Now it's July, and the client has not heard anything or seen anything about any writ being filed or any decision being made by the Court of Appeals. So do you think that um, something that the Court of Appeals, that that writ would still be pending without a decision, or do you think that the decision has already been made and the client just doesn't know about it? I think the decision has already been made and somehow the client doesn't know about it. Why do you think that? Tell us about the timeline a little bit. Um, the... The reason that writs are, are required instead of appeals at the time reunification services are terminated is because a writ is a quicker review uh, by the court than an appeal. The whole idea is that the writ must be dis, uh, decided before the 2-6 hearing is held. If, the, if it can't be decided before the 2-6 hearing is held, um, and the court is going to actually hear the merits of the writ, it will stay the the proceedings in the trial court. The two, it will stay the 2-6 proceedings. What that means is the court of appeal will tell the trial court, you cannot have this 2-6 hearing, uh, the termination hearing, until we decide these issues. Um, 
So the court of uh, appeal is very good about usually, unless the is issue is complex, they're very good about getting these these decisions out before the um, before the two six date. So um, it may it could be that the person um, the court hasn't decided, but it's not likely since you're telling me that the hearing is in, in July or, or August. But the, the uh, parent, the parent can find out the information about the status of their writ online. I'm glad you mentioned that. One of our listeners just texted me that and, and told me that um, you can check online at the Court of Appeals website and see if you're, what the status of your writ or your appeal is in any case. Do you happen to know that website? Correct. Or what we can Google? If, um, what, what can we Google to find can, that website? Address? You can go to the um, the court, the state website, which is, I think it's called, it's courtinfo.com. Um, and then you, you can click on where it says courts. You click on, uh, and it'll list the, the different courts, and you and the person wants the court of appeal, and then it you further uh, tells you which court of appeal because there's um, several of them up and down the state of California, depending on where you live. If you want to Google, you can just Google California Court of Appeal. Okay, so the lady that I met with yesterday is listening today. She told me she was going to be listening to the show. If she she found out that the writ was filed, the notice of intent was filed in March, like March 24th, on the 25th, she actually received a notice from the Superior Court. And it was a notice, noticing all attorneys and all parties. If she finds out because she hasn't been able to get in contact with her court-appointed attorney. But if she finds out that the writ was never filed and that she was never given the opportunity to file a writ if the attorney had deemed it you know, frivolous, what are her remedies? What can she do? Um, she can write a motion to the Court of Appeal explaining that she didn't get notice and asking for an opportunity to um, to file the notice or file the writ, rather. Okay. Okay. And if I said to you, Stephanie, if we wanted to write that motion for her and the accompanying declaration, what have you? How long? How many hours do you think that would take us to do? Thirty minutes. Um, three hours, well, it, five hours. It, I would say between five to seven hours because I have to get there. You have to, I have to learn all the information. Then I have to get a declaration from the client. Then I have to write the motion. So. Okay. All right. And we have about five minutes left in the show and I want you to, because you've won a few of these writs in the past year. And what I want you to do is think of one that's most notable to you. Tell us briefly about the facts and tell us why you won 
on your writ in front of the Court of Appeals. Okay. Um, the one uh, that comes to mind, the um, mother was given a case plan that required her to do um, drug and alcohol testing and um, parenting and um, individual counseling, I believe, and then what was what was called a psychological assessment. Uh, one of the allegations that was sustained was that she had um, emotional uh, or mental health issues that were preventing her from caring for her child. Uh, so she went six, six months. At the first six-month hearing date, the social worker recommended terminating her reunification services. Um, I, the writ was filed timely, and the Court of Appeal um, did not even actually ask for the other side to brief the issue. The court, on its own, issued a, a writ of, um, ordering the trial court to give the mother six more months of reunification. And the reason they did that was because I made an argument that reasonable reunification services had not been provided because the social worker failed to do anything about uh, the psychological assessment and determining what specific mental health issues the mother was having that was preventing her from um, regaining custody or keeping custody. You know, say that once again, what argument did you did you make? I argued that reasonable reunification services had not been provided because the social worker failed to uh, refer the mother to the psychological assessment uh, and determine what kind of mental health uh, services she needed. And so you that was the purpose of the assessment. The that was the purpose of the assessment. I see. And the Court of Appeals didn't even give the county uh, a chance to respond or argue against that? That's correct. They issued the writ immediately. Which means they... And the, judge, the trial judge was reversed and the parent, our client, got six more months of reunification, meaning six more months to try to get her children back. Correct. Okay, very good. Listen, we're running out of time. I want to thank you for calling in. Hopefully we'll have you a guest again in the future. Okay, you're welcome. Have a good day. Okay, folks, I had promised to give you folks a resource, and I think I, I neglected to do that. So I want you to go to Google and type in juvenile dependency dog book, and should come up, or California juvenile dependency dog book which come up are two links to the Juvenile Dependency Dog Book that's published by the Court of Appeal of the State of California and the Court of uh, Appeals. Everything you need to know about juvenile dependency. Um, 
thank you for listening, and I will see you see you next week on the radio. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.